This episode of See Here is brought to you by The Sound of Cheese. Episode 60 of the See Here podcast. This is the first episode of 2019, and it's the start of our sixth year. Six years? Well, no, five years, but the start of the sixth year. You know what I mean. Welcome to the podcast. We discuss music-related films, if this is your first time. If you've been listening to us for the last five years and you don't know what the hell we're talking about, we talk about music-related films, so we cover everyone. And joining me, as I usually do, we've sort of been apart for a little bit the last couple of episodes, but this is the core trio, the terrific trio, starting with Mr. Bernard Stickwell from Bath. Hello. And from Toronto, Mr. Tim Merrill. Freddie Lane is in my ears and in my eyes. Freddie Lane. <laughs> we got you to sing on the podcast. You know, no you comment. Said, you know, you set a precedent here, Tim. <laughs> We're going to have to get you to do that again in future. You know, No more disagreeing with singing in three-part harmony. I would stand off to the side and look sheepish. <laughs> oh, you look like a sheep. And hello to our New Zealand friends. We're here today to talk about a film with its director, which we've been doing for the last three months, and we're going to be doing next month as well. But the film that we're going to be talking about is a wonderful new documentary. It's called Ice Pick to the Moon, and it's about Fred Lane, the Reverend Fred Lane, but it's also about the Riddellness movement. Who are these people, you might be asking? Well, all will be revealed over the course of the next 30, 40, 50 minutes, whatever it is that it takes us to have this discussion. We are going to be speaking with the director of the film, one Skiz Sizik. Now, if you're a regular listener to the wonderful Projection Booth podcast, then you might be familiar with Skiz's name, but in case you are not, well, you will be familiar with him after the end of this episode. So I'm not even going to try to explain what the film Ice Pick to the Moon is about. We'll, we'll let Skiz by, talk by about it. By the end of the episode, if you happen to learn anything about Babylonian Tupperware, it's because of the fish. You're listening to See Here, episode 60. And now, a man who needs no introduction. Stand the man, I mark the meat. He's so completely and utterly cool and insane at the same time. There are only two kinds of people in the world. The ones who never heard of him and the ones who worship him. That spiritual star of stage, screen, radio, the Reverend Fred Lane. Fred Lane. Fred Lane. Fred Lane. Fred Lane. Fred Lane can be pretty abrasive. What an idiot. Who the hell is this guy? He's a cultural attack vehicle. He scared me. He knows that. He scared a lot of people. I really thought he might be a serial killer. Back to raid on the bad boy's head. It's actually very subversive, very radical, and this thing of like, I'm not going to take anything seriously, and what are you going to do to me about it? Having lunch with a white woman. It's weird, and it swings like nobody's business. He is an elliptical bitch. Just to work with him, period, just to be around him, just to try to communicate with him. You really never know what's real and what isn't. 
the hat, boxer shorts, a little pointed beard and a mustache and, you know, band-aids all over his face. It's just such a compelling character, just so completely off the wall, so pataphysical. In terms of what he was doing and his vision, he was definitely in a class by himself. You can't tell the Fred Lane story without telling the Redelinus story. Part of what the Redelinus group did a lot was just meet, model our behavior from the Surrealists and Dadaists, you know, the 1930s, and create. And um, if it could possibly offend someone, then it must be good. So, you know, mostly our concerts would, were like political confrontations. You put that group back together again, something is going to happen. Put your hands together and welcome the Reverend Fred Lane! You are not allowed to be around us unless you listen to Fred Lane. I'm a happy, sappy son of a gun Living in a robber room It's, uh, you know, a whole foot, really, worth of music on each one. Two feet, if you flip it over. Style my hair, shine my shoes, drain my blood and rub on the roof. Cut my nose on an old tin can, I'm just upwardly above the nostril man. Upwardly above the nostril man. Welcome back to episode 60 of the See Here podcast. And we're very excited because we have yet another great interview for you coming up on the other end of a Skype connection. We have from Baltimore, Mr. Skiz Sizik, director of Ice Pick to the Moon. Welcome to See Here, Skiz. Hey, thanks for having me. Skiz, before we get to talking about your new film, Ice Pick to the Moon, and what that's about, I wanted to just start talking a little bit about your earlier work. Now, your bio says that you started playing drums and guitar in a range of Baltimore punk bands in the early 80s. I'd like to know, what was the scene like back then? Were there any really big bands? Were there just a lot of local heroes? What was the scene like in Baltimore in the early 80s? Uh, well, I kind of just missed the change in the drinking age. It, it went from 18 to 21 when I was 16. So uh, I pretty much didn't get to go to a lot of the bars and clubs. I had to go to the all-ages clubs for a few years. You know, we had a good all-ages punk scene in Baltimore. I think probably the most popular or the most well-known band from the scene would have been Reptile House because they ended up on Discord and then kind of morphed into Lungfish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah. But, but otherwise, it was just kind of a, a nice little punk scene. It was something to do. It was definitely was dangerous. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that the history of music will forget that, uh, you know, punk rockers in the early 80s were not that welcome anywhere. <laughs> and in our town, that was certainly the case. I mean, you couldn't go to a shopping mall without being followed by security and, and roughed yep. up by jocks and yep. So I'm sure it's the same experience a lot of people had in the early 80s. But Yeah, it was you know. guaranteed shit-kicking in a lot of ways. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that was kind of the tail end of my high school years and the beginning of my college years. And now you've morphed into Power Pop with the Jennifers. Jennifer's are uh, one of, I, I lose track of how many bands I'm in at <laughs> a given time. 
And, and each band is kind of a different style. Like Jennifer's are sort of an indie pop type band. And then uh, I'm in a band called Garage Sale, which is sort of 60s garage and surf. Oh, man. Uh, I'm in a band called The Stents. Actually, my main band, The Stents, they're sort of a 60s garage punk band. And then Mink Stole, she's in all the John Waters films. She has a an yeah. act that I play drums for. And oh, her, hers is sort of like cabaret jazz meets, I don't even know how to describe it. <laughs> It's 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 completely different from anything else I do musically. So, and then That's I great. there's a few other like like half Japanese. I'm a peripheral member of that. Oh wow! Was it half Japanese that we were talking about earlier on last year while we were talking about the Daniel Johnson documentary? Right, Jad Fair, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's multiple lineups of that band. There, there's Jad has a lineup that does all the the touring and recording, but then there's a uh, sort of a classic lineup from the Baltimore D.C. area that features his brother David and, and Mark Jickling and the Dreyfus brothers. And sadly, uh, Ricky Dreyfus, the drummer, passed away a few years ago, and and they decided not to just replace him with one drummer but two and i'm one of those two drummers hmm. so every now and then i get to play a show with half japanese and it's amazing to be on stage playing songs records that i've loved for years and i'm actually on stage with the people that recorded them yeah right. <laughs> man that's crazy wow, that's yeah. so cool can i just ask with uh, with jad is what you see what you get with him is he really that kind of guy or was it uh, maybe a little bit of an actor there well you probably couldn't possibly say could you i'm putting you on the spot a little here <laughs> i don't know i mean jad is a uh, he's a character you know, as far as I can tell, everything about him is just even more genuine than you would ever expect. He's, oh, he's a really great. nice guy. That's good to hear. Yeah, right. He's a great guy, like constantly creative, always busy, and you know, a joy to work with. He does some amazing uh, paper cutting art that I've seen that's really, really cool. Yeah, I've done some uh, work for him, video work for him, and he's paid me with paper cuts, and I'm always happy to get them because they're beautiful. <laughs> So you started studying media uh, in the early 80s, about 83, 84, according to your bio. And it said that you'd gone and made something like 50 short films, uh, including a bunch of music videos. So could you tell us a little bit about some of those early short films that you made? Yeah, I guess my very first film, I didn't have access to film equipment. So I made a slideshow about a there was a stuffed rodent. It was a, a stuffed animal that a buddy of mine and I in high school would enter in the talent shows just to sort of make fun of talent shows. And so my first and film was, was a, a phony documentary on this stuffed animal. And, and that guy's like the next year I started taking film classes and shooting Super 8 and 16 millimeter and then video. And I'm always working on some kind of project and have been since what 82 83 now oh. to come to some of your later work i watched over the last few days your uh, 2013 documentary hit and stay which was really fascinating to me at the height of the vietnam war nine catholics entered this white frame building in catonsville maryland it was a draft board the nine some of them catholic priests seized selective service files they brought those files out onto this parking lot and then burned them with the help of homemade napalm it's not a part of american history that i'm aware of and i don't claim to be like a a, a big student of American history, but this was really something I hadn't heard about. And for those out there who aren't aware, it starts off as an action taken by clergymen originally in Baltimore and then spread to the rest of, I think, the eastern seaboard of the states where they took activism as a protest against the Vietnam War. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to take an interest in making that film, Skiz? Yeah, that's uh, my buddy Joe Trapea, who 
who uh, he and I used to play together in the Jennifers, he was writing a paper on the Catonsville Nine. And I had said to him, when you go to interview these people, don't just take your notepad or your, your audio recorder, take a video camera, you know, because they're not going to live forever. And any footage of them is going to be very valuable to a documentary filmmaker someday. And me telling him that resulted in him roping me in, going with him with my video camera. And so we were shooting all these interviews and they were going great. And then he said that he wanted to make this film. And then he, he kind of roped me into doing it. I was glad to. I mean, I, like he, he jokes about how I said that I was getting more work done on his film than mine. So I might as well partner with him. <laughs> and so we partnered together. And the thing was, we started out making a film about the Catonsville Nine. But as we interviewed people, we found out that the Catonsville Nine had inspired all these other similar actions all over the country that we had no knowledge of at the time. And so we basically learned this whole piece of, of history as we were making this film. Like we didn't have anything to go on beforehand. Wow. So, so it wasn't particularly well documented before your film? I think it had all been documented, but maybe not all in one place yet. I mean, there, there are books now. But I don't think the, the point had really been drawn that at, at that time in 68, the, the anti-war movement, the you know, people protesting Vietnam were mostly seen as scruffy college age kids that just didn't want to be drafted. But this was this moment where middle-aged clergy show up on the news willing to go to jail to make people understand that that the war was wrong. And that was sort of a turning point in the uh, perception. It sounds almost like the work of Studs Terkel, where it was like a direct oral history from the people that were involved, as opposed to getting a secondhand uh, telling of it through the media, like through the news, the nightly news or whatever. Right. Yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, news footage for us to, to work with, even though they had been all over the news. But finding that stuff 50 years later isn't the easiest thing to do. It was fascinating how the story actually developed. It's it's great that you did sort of keep learning more and more things. And when the FBI gets involved and there's those stings, it's just something that you couldn't have seen at the beginning of the film. And it just sort of presented itself to me almost like a great work of fiction. That's how you would do something. You'd start off with, say, like in a film noir, you'd start off with one concept and then it goes in directions that you just really don't envisage in the beginning of the film. Right, yeah. Like I said, I mean, we were surprised. We, we couldn't believe the story we had and I'm glad we uncovered it because a feature-length film just about the Cajunsville Nine would have been good, but, but you know, I'm glad we found out a lot more. Crossing over into North Carolina, my wife looked over at me and said, that's what I love about the South. <laughs> She's talking about the fake record with Fred Lane being lynched <laughs> the live at the first Baptist prison or something. Well, let's move into the fundus and speak about the Reverend (laughs) Fred Lane and your new documentary, Ice Pick to the Moon. I mean, should we really call it your new film? 19 years in the making. We'll get to the reasons behind why it took so long, but I guess we should be fair that in the end, it turns out to be not just a film about Fred Lane. There's a lot more to it with the Redelmus movement, but he seems like the perfect type of musician to actually make a documentary about. So how did you discover him? I was the music director at my college radio station back in the 80s when Shimmy Disc Records re-released his album from the one that cut you and released his then so far unreleased album Car Radio Jerome. I wear a cheap suit, look at my wristwatch, pursue my haircut, read the time, eat breakfast with the bell hop, the men's room and fix my ties, every hair in place, every shirt divine. I make a note of the bell hop. He said your legs were fine. And I loved both of these albums, and I just couldn't stop listening to them. And 
I would play them for friends and they would all kind of look at me like they didn't hear what I was hearing. And I was like, well, why do I love this? But I don't, I can't get anyone else to love it with me. And for years, I would meet other Fred Lane fans and they would say almost the exact same thing. They found them through college radio. They loved it. They'd play it for their friends. Their friends didn't get it. So whenever I would meet another Fred Lane fan, it was almost like this special connection. And then one thing that I realized that we all had in common is none of us knew anything about the guy. Like all the information on the back of the album covers is a joke. So we had no idea who he really was, where he was from, when the records were recorded. We knew nothing. And I just for the longest time thought, well, I want to find out all that I can. And then in the late 90s, I was uh, nominated for this really big grant and I, I needed to turn in this grant application with a treatment for what I would spend the money on. And I, I came up with, I wanted to make this documentary about all these different music artists that I really like that most people would not like. And, and, and the idea, it's the kind of music that people will jokingly refer to as being so bad it's good. Uh, right. And, you know, I'm talking like Mrs. Miller and the Shags and the Del Rubio sure. triplets. And, but then you get the Fred Lane. It's like, well, I don't think of him as so bad it's good. I think of him as good. Basically, uh, uh, several things happened at once. One was Erwin Chusid's book, Songs in the Key of Z, came out, you know, a book about outsider music. And I realized if I were going to make that film, I needed to kind of make it with his involvement because he had now written the book on outsider music. And he didn't think that Fred Lane should be on that list. And then the other thing that happened was I didn't get the grant. So I uh, kind of abandoned the whole project, except that I had already started doing all the research on Fred Lane and I didn't want to stop. So... That was 1999, and I just kept researching them for a couple years, and then I started shooting in 2001, and then, <laughs> what, uh, 2018, I'm done. <laughs> wow, that's a level of commitment I can uh, I can only uh, aspire to. I completely I admire that so much. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so having a read through the diary entries that you keep on your website, it seemed that there were often issues of finance and jobs getting in the way and not having jobs which meant lack of finance to complete the film but was maybe in some ways was having it a a long birth maybe a good thing because you'd find new people to talk to and would people recommend other people for you to talk to and how difficult was it to find all the key players in in the redullness movement yeah well you just touched on a bunch of things there i didn't work on it constantly for 19 years i worked on a little bit here and a little bit there and it was all self-funded so when i had time and when i had money (laughs) there's a fan who's in the film, Stuart Russell, who had the very first website that I could find that had any truth about Fred Lane. It wasn't just repeating the myths that all the fans knew. And through Stuart, I got in contact with Craig Nutt, who is Ron Pate from Fred Lane's band. And through Craig, I started getting getting in touch with everybody else. And you know, at the time, I was thinking, well, I'll finish this in a year or two, and that just didn't happen. And and what I realized now that the film is over is I kept setting different deadlines for myself and missing them. And I'm glad I missed each one of them because for each deadline, like if I had finished it in you know one particular year, I wouldn't have had I would this super eight footage in the film of this parade that was such a big deal to the people involved. Then if I had finished it in another year, like I was gonna, I I don't even remember which years these were, but you know, something happens in the film that's a pretty major development in the Fred Lane story. And if I had already finished the film, I wouldn't have that major development. And then there's something at the very end that, again, is another major development in the Fred Lane story. That mm-hmm. The film was already done 
when that happened. And I pretty much just tacked on an extra minute at the end of the film so that that could be in there because it's too important to the story. So, you know, the 19 years ended up being what it, you know, the film ended up being what it needed to be. And it wouldn't have been that if I'd have made it any quicker. I guess in a way it's kind of like a baby. It doesn't matter how long you're laying there to get it out as long as you get it out. That's the important part. (laughs) (laughs) We've been having this discussion here, but I don't think I've quite conveyed yet to the audience exactly who Fred Lane was. Mind you, even at the end of the film, do you think that you've conveyed who Fred is Fred Lane definable? Um, I I do wish that in the film I had gone into more of a discussion of exactly who and what Fred Lane is, as opposed to just showing you I let the fans sort of describe him. I let him sort of describe himself. But I I feel like there could have been a much bigger discussion about him. But I didn't have that. I didn't quite know how to fit that in. But ever since I finished the film, I think about it all the time. Like just things about Fred Lane that it tends to come up in all the Q&As that I see him as a sort of parody and a satire as a on sort of parody a, a, a kind of uh, masculinity a, a, that deserves to be made fun of and that he's also this sort of complicated, flawed character where he's both the hero and the villain at the same time. And all of that is wrapped around this really odd sense of humor that not everybody is going to get. And a lot of people that aren't going to get it are just going to think it's offensive. <laughs> and Which luckily the people that aren't going to get it aren't likely to encounter Fred Lane in the first place. So I've been pretty lucky that I haven't had to argue with too many people about like anything in the film that might be considered offensive. The man with the full back ears The man with the full back ears His ears full back His thumbs are long He makes a fist And he sings this song I wanted to ask you, Skiz, is Fred Lane in real life? It's a similar question to uh, when, when I mentioned Jad earlier. I mean, is what you see what you get when you point the camera at him? Is he performing or cause he right. seems to be sort of on pretty much all the time, you know? So. Yeah, you know, for those that haven't seen the film, you, you find out that Fred Lane is a character being played by a guy named Tim Reed. And Fred Lane and Tim Reed are definitely two different personalities, but they are both on at all times. I mean, Tim right. Reed, he's just constantly funny. He's, he's just got that grin, hasn't he? That little kind of impish grin is just there all the time. Yeah, and, yeah, and I mean, he's, he's always, you know, walking around singing or making funny noises or, you know, just saying funny stuff. Or else he's completely quiet. And, and it's brought up in the film that he's actually kind of shy, and he, and he is. But I think it might be a little bit of a defense mechanism. But then if he's really comfortable with you, you really get to enjoy it. <laughs> you know, It's like there's levels of it. And, and boy, when he really reaches the top of those levels, it's a lot of fun to be around. <laughs> there was an interesting moment in the film where they're at was it the Kentuck Arts Festival and yes. he's running a stall with his wife and she describes about I don't know you want to call it the courtship but yeah how they met and was there anything where you filmed the two of them speaking together you know she sort of gave the, you know, the narrative well you know oh, I wasn't sure but you know we ended up together so it was okay but I'd know I'd be sort of interested to sort of see how the two of them were together. Was there any footage that you had? Were you able to convince them to talk together? Yeah. In fact, there will be some extras on the DVD when that comes out. There were some scenes that, you know, I really tried to get the running time down and, and I never really got it down as short as I wanted it, but I just got it to a point where I couldn't stand to take anything else out. But one of the things I took out were some scenes of them hanging out at their house with their dogs. It doesn't add anything to the story other than to give you a feel for what they're like when they're at home. 
home. But it's so charming. I mean, they're, they're adorable, and them interacting with their pets is a lot of fun. But yeah, I wish I could have fit that in the film. Where is Tim from originally? He's from Tuscaloosa. I mean, he, he grew up I in thought. Tuscaloosa. Because there's one interesting thing I've, I've found is that there's a kind of assumption by some that anything that that's important always comes from major cities, you know, like New York and L.A. and this kind of thing or movements. But I've always found it's quite the opposite. It's always the smaller little towns, you know, like Akron gave us a little band called Devo. And then the residents, as much as people say they came from San Francisco, actually came from, you know, the southern U.S., Right. And then, you know, right. and then with you with Baltimore, with John Waters, I, you know, it, it's just it always seems to me that it's the smaller towns where people are bored shitless. They can't go to the world then they'll bring the world to them or they'll create their own worlds. And I think that this is a really great thing with the Redolness movement and all of the things that Tim did with Fred Lane to me was it's just kind of like we're not satisfied with the way things are. So we're, we're basically going to create what we want to create. You know, it's not a matter of why shouldn't it be? It's a matter of well, why, why not? Right. I was always saying that if Rodolinus had happened in some bigger city, it might be mentioned in art textbooks or art history books. But the fact that it happened in Tuscaloosa, which is a town that isn't necessarily being paid attention to by the art world, it has gone unnoticed and shouldn't have. And it's I guess it's kind of time to start paying attention to it. If you're not part of the mainstream, you weren't in a sorority, you weren't in a fraternity, you didn't go to a church, you didn't do these mainstream establishment acceptable things. If you weren't doing that, you were different. Well, once you're different, well, you might as well just be really different. I mean, why why stop there? You know, I mean, if, if you're not going to fit in, be you. Be, be part of something that is radically different. I just love the fact that these people all came together in the fact that it was a collective dissatisfaction and it wasn't so much kind of like a fuck you to society, but kind of more of a, well, let's cultivate our own society. You know, let's let's cultivate our own kind of way of thinking and perspectives. And I think one thing that's kind of interesting, too, is that when you see the film, when they're, they're having the uh, homecoming parades, when they're all dressed as the fruit or every year they had their theme, you would figure, well, at that time it would seem strange. But then when you really think about it, you know, like Planner's Peanuts had a Mr. Peanut and, the, you know, and he would walk down a road like in a parade or something. Or there was other, you know, corporations that had their own mascots. And, you know, it, it wasn't that weird. But the fact is, is that they were just doing their own thing. It wasn't connected to a product. It wasn't connected to a statement. It was just having fun. Yeah. I, I love the thing I in the film the where Davey Williams points out that there was another group in the parade of sorority girls dressed as Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. He's right. like, call us weird. <laughs> Some sorority. They were all dressed as buckets of uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. Okay, call us weird. There's a bunch of cute girls who actually really want to appear to be buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Hey, we fit right in. <laughs> or I like the other guys where the guy goes into his house to dish some stuff and everybody follows him and then the other float shows up and says, hey man, did jump on ours, you know? That yeah. was awesome. And then it just because of this collective, it's almost like Animal House, you know? It's like this kind of collective uh, chaos, you know? It's great. Yeah. The, the guy on the other float that, that they top up on, a, another thing that I wish I could have left in the film was who he is because apparently he is a, a very well-known person in Alabama who I think ran for governor several times and was just this character
character that uh, nobody outside of Alabama would know of. But I'm, I'm kind of hoping somebody down there will make a documentary about that guy now because I'm sort of <laughs> curious to know a lot more about him. Maybe that's right? your next project, Skiz. And uh, not for me, no. <laughs> <laughs> At the time when all of this happened, do you think that Fred Lane would have been able to happen today or the whole Redolness movement would have been able to happen today? I feel like there's a lot of things like Redolinus happening today all over. I mean, here in Baltimore, like there's all sorts of things. Well, I don't hear much about it now, but in the last 10 years, I mean, we had this thing called Wham City that uh, was kind of a collective of artists doing all, a lot of the same similar things to what Redolinus did in the 70s, right. but also very similar to a lot, a lot of what was already going on here in the 80s, but with nowhere near the amount of people involved or interested. Out of that collective, there are these characters that sort of popped up and became it's very similar to how Redellinus, you know, it was a group, but out of the group, there was Fred Lane. There was, you know, Craig Nutt making his furniture and Anne LeBaron is all over the world doing things as a composer and David right. LaDonna, you know. So I think there there's still a lot of things like that happening everywhere. In L.A. and uh, San Francisco now in the 80s, they had the, what they called the Cacophony Society. Right. And I think they were kind of doing like collectives like, you know, getting 100 people dressed as Santa Claus and showing up in the middle of August or people, everybody wearing Hawaii. Hawaiian shirts or like there was like these kind of group events that I think were going on. In some respects, social media and all its ills, you know, it, in some ways it's, it's easier now for people with similar mindsets or interests or kind of modes of artistic expression to kind of find each other and do these things. So I think there is still a lot of it happening out there. I even kind of feel like, like as I was researching Redellinus and interviewing these people, it all sounded so familiar because it sounded like me and my buddies when we were teenagers and, and early 20s. And the big difference is, is that they managed to document what they were doing. They put out vinyl records that, you know, just don't disappear. <laughs> and and we didn't. We put out cassettes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, if they hadn't made those records, I don't know that if we'd be talking about them, you know, in, in 2019, but I'm glad they made those records. So for the audience, we haven't actually sort of explained what the Redellinus movement was. Would you like to sort of give a brief explanation as to who they sure. were? It was uh, early 70s at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa, and there were just several pockets of weirdos in town. You know, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I actually mean that in the best way possible. And they all were like each other's biggest fans, so they came together as one big group and started doing things. You know, they put together this big band for improvised music and called themselves the Blue Denim Deals Without the Arms. They started putting on shows, they put on art shows, they put on stage productions, they started marching in the, the homecoming parade, and basically were just sort of a thorn in the side of the administration, because everything they were doing was sort of countercultural. You know, it wasn't like 
everybody was paying attention to them. <laughs> you know, it's like people were either ignoring them or being annoyed by them. So it wasn't like that was going to make them famous. But they all graduated and they moved to other places and they became kind of well-known in their own fields. I think it was a matter of necessity. It seems like it was all necessity to all of them, as opposed to seeing where they could gain some type of infamy. It just seemed like it was this kind of compulsion that had to achieve a, a conclusion, I guess. Right. Yeah, I think it's, it's Fletcher Hayes in the film that talks about how the campus was a, a big like fraternity and sorority scene, and right. they basically made their own, and it was Redellinus. Well, that's just it. I mean, like when you look at university, right, where you've got the fraternities, they're creating their own societies. And then you've got the jocks who are creating their own societies. And why shouldn't the artists, you know, why right. shouldn't the freaks create their own society? I mean, like, you know, it's only inevitable. I mean, everybody else is, you know, acknowledging society in their own ways. Why shouldn't, you know, the weirdos, like you say, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, for me, it was the uh, the film department and the college radio station. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have a fraternity to go to. Right. Now, the one thing that really surprises me in this film is that when you look at artists like The Residents, how it was really important to them to keep their anonymity and in, in the sense that, you know, the anonymity gave them license to do whatever the hell they wanted to do. And I was really surprised that Tim was receptive, or I'm just making an assumption he was receptive to your film, because I would think that they kind of went out of their way with the Fred Lane albums to kind of make it so obscure and and the layers and layers and layers of nonsense just to kind of, you know, keep everybody at arm's length. I would kind of assume that, you know, later on, they're like, well, you know, we did that for a reason. We're just kind of trying to fly under the radar. So was he really kind of, you know, hesitant initially or immediately receptive? I get the feeling he maybe wasn't too sure about me at first. I mean, I didn't meet him in person until I think 2005. We talked on the phone several times. Like I would go to this film festival in Birmingham, Alabama every year, and he was living in Tuscaloosa, which is like less than an hour away. But he was never around when I was in town. And then I would go work for the Atlanta Film Festival every year, and he had moved to Atlanta, and he, but he was never in town. And then finally, I tracked him down in Chattanooga, and I was like, I am coming to you when you are there. Let me know. And that was how I finally got to meet him. But until that point, I wasn't quite sure if he really wanted me to make this film or not. And at one point, I think Jeannie had said to me, Jeannie, his wife, had, had said that I must have won over you know, because he seems to be cooperating with me. And, and you know, maybe he's thinking about his mortality and wants to leave a mark. And this is one way of doing it. So at that point, I kind of felt like, OK, cool. Or <laughs> I felt like, well, she's on my side and that'll be a, a, a real help. And cool. it was. And then by the, by the end of the production, I mean, I kind of felt like, you know, my, my partner, Jen, and I and Tim and Jeannie, we've become like pretty close friends. Just, you know, they're, they're like some of our favorite people. And so it went from being just a guy that was a hero of mine to, to actually being a friend of mine. What, and, and what you're saying about keep, keeping uh, their identities a secret, right. uh, Craig Nutt actually said something to me about how. You know, he makes this vegetable themed furniture and woodworking and stuff. And he was right. saying how great it is that he has Craig Nutt, his real name, making this artwork. You know, but he also has Ron Pate that did all this Rodellinus stuff. And <laughs> there's very little overlap. Like that will never come back to haunt him because no one will ever put it together that it's him. 
nice. until they until they see the film. <laughs> well, in a lot of cases, there's a lot of documentaries sometimes where they're, they they put forward this initial mystery. And by the end, it gets solved, you know, like who is such and such or how did this happen or why did it happen? But I think with, with your film, even though you do find out who Fred Lane really is, it doesn't take anything away from it. It doesn't make you feel like, OK, I get it. Ha ha. It's a novelty. No, it's incredible that it's just another facet of who Tim is. Right. Yeah. The whole, a lot of time I was working on this film, like every so many years, there would be a, a documentary that suddenly got popular, you know, like the Anvil and Searching for Sugar Men and Devil and right. Daniel Johnston and uh, the Jandak on Corwood. And everybody would be like, oh, well, yeah, your film sounds like and they would say one of those titles. And I would be like, oh, man, I hope one of these days it's people are saying, hey, your film sounds like Ice Pick to the Moon. <laughs> because, <laughs> right, you know, right, exactly. my film definitely has similarities to all of them, but I wouldn't have made it if it was exactly like any of them. Right, right. Remember me, I'm the one that cut you. I hope the pain is gone. Did it hurt just a little bit? Did it bleed just a little bit? I cut you. I'm the one. So let's talk for a second about the music of Fred Lane. I think that's one thing that we really haven't touched on yet. For people that haven't heard the main album, the first album and the unreleased, how would you describe what Fred has done? I, uh, I've always said that to me it sounds like a really swinging big band made up of some really talented musicians who are maybe not playing on instruments they're familiar with. And that's and that's just the music. And then there's Fred Lane, who is this front man that I've always said sounds like he's playing a joke that's going over everybody's head, including his own. <laughs> like nobody, nobody is meant to actually get the joke. That's just my interpretation. And I'm sure like Tim may see it differently. And of course, he would be right since it's his creation. I, I know that after meeting him and getting to know him, I listen to the records differently and I hear things that I'd never noticed before and lyrics that I used to just think were sort of surreal and weird. I kind of learned to dig into more and actually find the meeting or try to put together the reference because I know he loves old movies. He loves just old culture. You know, he's, he's kind of like a he's kind of like Tiny Tim. He's like an encyclopedia of culture from like before he was even born. Right. Right. And he uses all of that like that. It all shows up in the lyrics, but he might kind of twist the lyrics a little bit to make them, I don't know, funny or weird or whatever. Right. Um, right. We but were yeah, talking yeah, before I mean, the show about, you know, um, the three of us were talking about, you know, what we hear in Fred's music. And to me, it was like a combination of like Ernie Kovacs meets Spike Jones. Yeah. Well, I, I thought you could maybe you could see a little bit of beef art in what he does. Oh, uh, and also, I think, uh, I don't know if you, I'm sure you do know the artist, uh, R.S.T.V. Moore. I think he must have been quite heavily influenced by Fred. Hmm. There's definitely uh, a correlation there, I think. You know, I, I, I'm Facebook friends with R.S.T.V. Moore. I never thought to ask him. <laughs> Oh, okay. There, there were two points of reference for me while listening to that first album. The first song on the album, Fun and the Fundus. We make love in the Chrysler building. The 
raise our glasses to the sky Turn on the radio and say bye-bye Hollandaise is washed to sea Dutch to you, a treat for me I know that like you had the people at the beginning of the film who were saying, yeah, oh, I was like a demonic Frank Sinatra or Dada's Duke Ellington. The first thing that came to my mind while listening to that song, especially when once he starts scatting, I was thinking uh, Buddy Love, uh, you know, Jerry Lewis in, uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in The Nutty Professor. Where he's... <laughs> um, and there was that song on the album called Oatmeal. I sailed the China Seas in my pajamas on a raft. And my exile was some Rhine gold. I drift into the sewers and a miner's hat. Is the sun about to come up? Are we digging a well? You ask me. And I swear it sounds like he's channeling old Groucho Marx. And it sounds like something right. he would have sung along Lydia the Tattooed Lady or something like that. On the one hand, I know there's been a lot of description about the album. So, yeah, it's got the country flavor and it's got the big band swing flavor. But you have these little undefinable things. I mean, even the, the last mm-hmm. tune on the album was a Meek Thant Conduit. Just sounds like this little evil lullaby being played off a music box. You know, that doesn't fit into the, the swing thing that seems to be predominant on, certainly on Car Radio Jerome, but also like on the first right. part of from the one that there, cut you. There's one track I love. It's called uh, Danger Is My Beer. <laughs> sounds like a ventures track right it, it sounds like a total surf like bizarre surfy i love it i mean it's an instrumental but it's just it's just great i just there's things you can put your finger on and then there's things you can't and i think that's the initial thing about fred lane that i think is so great is that you can go yeah there's this but i don't know what that is you know i i, I can't really put my finger on you know but but it's all good it's and just it, it all sounds like gumball. fred lane doesn't it right it's a gumball yeah yeah, yeah yeah if you can say that you have a favorite skis what's your favorite fred lane tune what sort of typifies him for you the most uh well that's obviously that's obviously a hard one to uh, answer but the first one that comes to mind would be white woman having lunch with a white woman everybody wants to have a white woman she's a caucasian I'm a Caucasian You know it's got to be a white woman Yes, it's, nice. It's, it's just such, it's a swinging song all the way through, and it's like, what is he singing about? <laughs> you know? Right. It's just such a, perf- it's so perfectly done. Right. Now, you know, as I've been thinking about it, there's that current guy, Richard Cheese. That asshole, I think, owes a lot to Fred Lane. <laughs> 
That's because, the lounge against the machine guy, right? Right, exactly. But it, and I'm just saying the way he's kind of trying to be tongue in cheek with the whole loungy thing. But he, you know, he doesn't even have an ounce of originality to Fred does. But it's just that whole approach of just like, okay, that's quirky, like something I can relate to, but at the same time is something out of my frame reference. Yeah, he's doing sort of big sort band of big swing renditions of popular music. Right, right. Right. Yeah, he does like gangster rap and stuff like that, doesn't he? With all the, uh, it's kind of uh, a sort of one-note joke, really. You know, what I've, I've, heard. I've, I've heard some of his stuff, and I, I was pretty amused. But yeah, it is like it's kind of like Weird Al Yankovic. If you don't know the songs he's parroting, you're, you're probably missing a lot of the joke. Right. Well, I think that's the whole thing with Fred, though. There's one side of me while I was listening to the first album. It kind of got me thinking, like you could play this for your grandparents, and they'd be grooving on it. And they would, you know, it's like a lot of the, the a lot of the, the the lyrics in that would just completely go right over their head. They'd just be listening to the initial, just the tone and the beat and the music. And I think that you know, it's almost like a, a joke about popular music in the sense that you could be putting something really subversive underneath the bed of popular music and most people would listen to it and never really get it. They would never really hear what's really there. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I loved about the album is it sounded like it shouldn't have been in my record collection. It should have been in, like, my uncle's or my, my grandfather's collection. Absolutely. You get songs like Mystic Tune where they're playing with your grandfather a bit because it comes out starting out with this little tune and then Fred will say, Mystic Tune. And then halfway through you get sounds of a saw or a drill or doors opening. $1.35. You just have your grandfather saying, hey, what, what's happened to the record? Well, is something going on outside? What, what's happened? So even musically, he's playing with you, not just lyrically. Years and years ago, when I was just a kid, Mad Magazine used to have these flexi uh, albums in the, in the front of their, their magazine, and they'd have multiple endings where you'd put your needle down, and then if you put the needle down again, song... And it was almost the same way. Like, there was just something really whimsical about all of it. Just, you know, like Morris is saying, how, you know, all of a sudden something would come on that would be completely different, you know, and, and you're, you're getting used to a certain thing, and then all of a sudden, bang, it's just completely the opposite end of the spectrum. And you're like, what? What's going on here? Like, yeah, it was great. Yeah. I can't think of which song it is, but there's this song where there's this middle part where it's just sort of this noisy jamming like several instruments soloing at the same time and they're just like wailing away and then it stops for a second and there's this real pretty little flute solo for about half a measure and then all those other instruments just come back in again and every time i hear it i've heard the song i've heard these records like hundreds of times and i still laugh every time i hear that it's just like it suddenly turns into this really nice thing and then you're like oh no we're back to this crazy sound again let's give you some legitimate music for a second here okay it's gone yeah. but, but there I guess maybe be the whole overall mission statement for that band and for Fred Lane you know there's beauty within chaos right maybe I'm reading too much into it but that's what that says no me. I don't think so no, I think the whole idea behind the redundant movement in Fred is that you know everybody's they're saying why not I think that's the whole thing it's just why not that's it you know? yeah oh tell me about your music what 
What's more important to you, your music or your whirly gigs? I think both of them are more important than the other. I want to come back to the film and just sort of ask you a little bit about how you went about with the editing. We don't have like a story being told from start to finish. You sort of you know move in and out a little bit. We get introduced to the talking heads saying, right, oh, we love Fred Lane, we love who he is. Then meeting some members of the band and then going back to who was the Redalness movement, then talking about pataphysics and the timeline goes all over the place and it works really wonderfully well and it's very appropriate for the subject matter. But was editing a real challenge and were you doing it as you went or once you had all the footage that you wanted are there five or six different cuts of the film that you put together to work out which one worked for you best i mean there there were about 16 cuts total by the time i got to the final cut but in those 16 i kept a lot of that was trying to get the running time down but i also kept trying to get what order am i going to put things in and at one point i just decided I'm making this for Fred Lane fans. I'm making this for people that will hopefully watch it more than once. So I'm not going to do everything linear. Like I'm, I'm going to give you some information in this part of the film that's not going to make any sense. But then later in the film, you'll find out something that will make that earlier information make sense, even though you will probably have forgotten that part by then. But when you go back and watch it a second time and you have the information you got later in the film, earlier in the film now, it'll all make sense, if any of that made sense. I play a lot with the fact that there's a lot of misinformation information and a lot of misunderstood information. So there's actually contradicting information within the film, and it's sort of up to who do you trust for which of that information is true. And a lot of times, if it's Craig Nutt saying it, that's who I go with, mm. because he, uh, he kept records and he, he was a very responsible guy. With the exception of the very beginning of the film, which like the first, uh, I think, 16, 17 minutes is just fans talking about Fred Lane. That was all because one of the fans, when I interviewed him, said that he'll be a little sad when the film is finished because so much of the fun of being a Fred Lane fan is not knowing anything. Mm. And I realized, oh, yeah, I'm about to ruin that for, <laughs> you know, for Fred Lane fans. But like I and said, so, you, don't ruin it. you don't ruin it because even though you do know who Fred Lane is, it's still fine. Right. But I wanted to make sure anybody watching the film that uh, didn't already know, I wanted to put them in the position that the fans had been in for so many years and until the Internet basically, you know, let the cat out of the bag. And sure. that's the reason why there's animation of a cat coming out of a bag at that point in the film <laughs> is because, OK, here it is. And, and that animation, I should definitely give a shout out to my friend Wally Chung, who, who animated the cat coming out of the bag. There was that section of the film where you explain the history of Albert Jari and what pataphysics was. and right. So that was your animated work, was it? Because you'd already gone and done that for a Jennifer's film clip as well. I had been asked by this arts organization in New York to make a short film for a special thing they were doing. And I, I can't remember the actual details about it, but I, I remember like thinking, I don't really want to take the time to make something else. I want to work on Ice Pick to the Moon. And Jen, my partner, had suggested, why don't you make part of Ice Pick to the Moon that will fit what they're asking for and then use it in the film? And I was like, that's a good idea. And I knew all along that there was going to be this whole section where they're discussing Alfred Jarry and pataphysics because that was such a big influence on them. I knew I would have to explain it somewhere in the film. So I came up with the idea that I would make a short film that was basically an oral report, Alfred Jarry and, and pataphysics. And 
I wasn't quite sure how to turn that into a film, but I had already made this music video for the Jennifers where all the singing is being done through animated T-shirts. And I still had the shirts like a lot of effort went into making these shirts. We used them to make this music video. Oh, thank you. But we we were still sitting on these shirts. And I was like, well, let's recycle these shirts. I mean, after all, how many people saw that music video? So I got the Tinklers who were uh, uh, still are a Baltimore act, but they were on Shimmy Day. That's the same label that put out Fred Lindsworth's. And I got them to wear the, the shirts. We basically used the same we idea used that was used in the Jennifer's video and made this two and a half minutes uh, short uh, film about Al Jari. And that film got shown all over the world. It took me to France and <laughs> took me to Ottawa. And then when it came time to put the film together, it was too long. So I ended up cutting it in half. An ice pick is just half of the actual short film. How's the film actually been received? It's been like out and on the film festival circuit now for it'd be a few months now wouldn't it it premiered last april at the uh, chattanooga film festival i don't want to say it hasn't done all that well on the film festival circuit but it hasn't (laughs) i have had a career working in film festivals i kind of know what film festivals are looking for and this isn't the kind of film that festivals typically like so i kind of knew you know you don't spend 19 years making a film about fred lane without thinking that it's going to get any better response than fred lane's records have gotten over the years so I, I kind of quickly knew not to count on film festivals. There have been like a, enough film festivals have shown it and I won an award and that's been great. I, I thought I would do a lot more festivals with it. But when I realized that festivals weren't really responding to it, I decided I would just book screenings myself. I would self-distribute it. I, I've been taking on little tours. And the thing is, it's gotten great reviews. The audiences seem to really like it. I mean, I've been told by friends at festivals why they didn't want to show it. And I'm like, well, uh, that's your reason for not programming it, but you're wrong. (laughs) It's like these (laughs) these audiences are enjoying it. Like if you'd programmed it, your audience might enjoy it. But, you know, that's your business. And, you know, I'm just going to keep showing it to people that want to see it and not worry about the people that don't want to show it to people. This would be a fun midnight movie for a music documentary. Yeah, I take it to these towns that I've never been in and I'm screening it in, you know, like a dive bar or I screen it like in, in Savannah, Georgia, I screened it in an abandoned dairy that didn't have a roof. And it's really not where it screens. It's it's the people that come here to see. It. And one of the screenings I had, the picture and the sound was so awful that I sat there and cringed and then realized that the audience just didn't even notice. You know, they, they were just enjoying <laughs> the film that they didn't even notice that it looked bad and it sounded bad. And I ended up hanging out with, with Fred Lane fans for an hour or two afterwards, just having the best time talking. And I'm like, yeah, this, this is one of those films where it's like, if you're the right mindset, you're going to love it. You know, And if you're not the right mindset, you know, hopefully you'll still love it. But if you don't, oh, well, didn't make it for you. Right. My, this is kind of like totally the, the field of dream story, you know, build it and they will come. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so importantly, how did Tim and Craig and any of the others enjoy it? Uh, so far, everybody seems to like it. Well, we premiered it in Chattanooga in April, which is where Tim lived. Tim and Jeannie live there now. We were there a year now. before uh, to shoot that final minute of the film and show him basically the film. You know, it was it was all finished except for the animation. And then I found out this development that happens at the very end of the film and went down there to show him the film as it was at that point and then shoot that, that final minute. Jeannie had told me on that trip that, you know, Tim may not say it to me you know, personally, but he's obviously really touched by it. And then a year later, when we premiered it in Chattanooga, as we were leaving, one of the last things he said to me was, thank you for the ego boost. <laughs> so I took that 
because he was pretty pleased with it. And actually, when I showed him the rough cut, I asked him, how did I get anything wrong? And he had like a few things that he said I got wrong that we were able to fix like right away. One was like I got a year wrong on something. And then somebody said something incorrect that I could tell he didn't really like that they got that information wrong. So I pulled out a digital recorder. I got him to give me the correct information, and I just used that as a voiceover. You know, as, you know, you sort of hear him, but you're looking at something else, and we fix that information. I'm like, all right, man, if it's just that those few things, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, as, as long as he's happy, I don't. I want to make sure that this is something that he can stand behind. You know, when you're really somebody that you really admire, and you, you want to do absolutely right by them, and then to actually go forward and present it in front of them and say, well, <laughs> like, that's got to really, I, I don't know if I could handle that. <laughs> I, I made a film a few years ago, I uh, co-directed with David Kozlowski called Freaks in Love about the band Alice Donut. When we premiered it in Chicago, most of the band members were there. And right. during the Q&A, I asked them, is there anything we got wrong? And it turned into a band argument. <laughs> if he, you know, because some of them are saying that we got this wrong and others are saying, no, that was right. And then they just start arguing. I was like, oh, why did I ask that question? And you didn't learn your lesson. Yeah. Well, I learned not to ask. <laughs> Except I, I asked him. I wouldn't have asked him in front of an audience and I wouldn't have asked him in front of the rest of the Redolinists. But, you know, I asked him personally. And luckily, there were only like three things that I had to change. From what you uh, mentioned earlier with extra footage and so on, it sounds like you do have plans to on DVD or Blu-ray or streaming or what have you at some point. Is that going to happen? Yeah, I'm working on a DVD and there is a whole lot of extras that'll be on it. That out as soon as possible because every time I screen the film, there's you know a line of people that would that would buy it. Sure, I think we'd all buy it. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's all these sales I'm missing by not having it. Uh, I want to get them made and then just sell them at the screenings for a few months to encourage sure. people to come to screenings. And then I'll make them available, you know, to order online. And then after I've sold a bunch of those, hopefully get it online for streaming and let it live out there on the Internet for eternity. Does Kramer still have the rights for the the two albums, or are the albums still being re-released, or will they ever be re-released? There's a whole history about that. If I understand correctly, Knitting Factory took over the Shimmy Disc catalog, and and I hope I have this right, because I'm sure there's legalities in discussing this, but they were claiming ownership of these records. Well, of course, you know, Tim never signed anything with Kramer, so it wasn't like Shimmy Disc actually owned them. Shimmy Disc just released them, but Knitting Factory was claiming ownership and as far as i know tim has managed to get all the rights back so that he can re-release them and i was really hoping that we could get those re-releases ready before the film came out right so that i, I could be selling those at shows and and right. i also know every time the film screens there's somebody that probably gets on their phone to try and buy those records and they're basically going to pay 30 dollars for a used copy and tim won't see any of that money and i was like right. let's get these re-releases out there so tim sees all that money there's a really great guy in chattanooga evan lipson you see him in the film playing bass at the end of the film, and he's been working with Tim on uh, new Fred Lane developments, which is great because I, I was worried that I was going to need to keep taking more trips to Chattanooga and try to help Tim get them, you know, get these oh, things taken care of. And is that you playing ukulele at the end of the film, Excuse me. It is. Yeah, yeah. I'm not one of those filmmakers that likes to put himself in his own films, but... You know, it was a dream come true to, uh, this is a big spoiler for anyone that hasn't seen the film, 
Fred Lane performs live, and uh, <laughs> it, it was a big thrill for me to, to see him play live. But it was, to add to that thrill, I got to join him on stage for one song, and uh, and I used some of that song in the closing credits. Nice. So, and I t- totally broke the rule. Like I had a teacher in college that taught documentary that said, you know, don't become part of the story. <laughs> and but yeah, I mean, uh, I yeah, I, the the Fred Lane story definitely changed a little bit because of this film, and so I. I really broke that rule. So any projects that you're working on at the moment that you uh, are able to talk about, Skiz? Uh, I've been trying to just finish up smaller projects that had been sitting on the back burner while I finished Ice Pick. Well, the first thing I did was there's an animated music video for the French Toast Man that you see in the film. Right. Turn around the block He's got a lot of French toast in the back He's got it wrapped up in a sock and uh, there's an artist, Alex Toby Southwick. She and I collaborated on that. But the problem was the only part of that song that we finished was the part that's used in the documentary. So as soon as the documentary was, was done, I immediately got to work on finishing the rest of that song. So that's now done, and I'm submitting that to film festivals, and that'll be an extra on the DVD. And in the meantime, there's another documentary that won't be a feature. It'll probably be like 20, 30 minutes. That's about a movie called Erg Music War. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. (laughs) That film was so important to me, the film and the album. I always say that it it would have been the Woodstock of my generation if my generation had cared about cooler music. And and so in the early 2000s, around the time I was was starting to work on Ice Pick the Moon, I was also starting to work on a documentary about that where any time anybody that had anything to do with that film came to my area, I would try to line up an interview with them. And my hope was for one of the anniversaries of the movie, I would have this short documentary and put it on the festival circuit and then hopefully if the film ever gets released on dvd it would be an extra i don't think it'll ever get legally released on dvd and it's complete in its form right (laughs) so i don't know that that extra will ever happen but i do want to just finish this thing and get it out there whether i just put it on youtube or you know a torrent site or whatever it's always bothered me with it there was never a definitive documentary on the cramps but as far as i'm concerned the footage of the cramps and erg is like some of the best footage that they ever got of the band yeah oh man a documentary on them would be fantastic i named my kittens lux and ivy after the cramps. <laughs> yeah there's so much history in that film i mean like you know you got oinkle boingo you got the surf punks you, there's just, it just goes on and on and on yeah, and the Gary, thing, Gary Newman in his little futuristic car coming yeah. on right. stage. And the thing about it, here, here in the U.S., really at the time that thing came out, only three of those acts had been on commercial radio, and that was the Police, Devo, and Gary Newman. Right. But within within two or three years, like half of that lineup years was all over MTV. You know, but, but at the time, I mean, I I'd, I'd never heard the Go Go's. You know, there there's so many acts on there that I'd never heard when that album came out and that film came out. But you know, everybody knows of them now. And, and XTC, of course, I think would have been they would yeah. have been on the American radio at that time. Uh, maybe college radio. Okay. okay. <laughs> but Flesh Tones, man, Flesh Tones are still at it. Yes. <laughs> I think X are recording a new oh. album in in that original lineup. 
Yeah, I just saw that. So, yeah, yeah. Thank well, you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to us, Skiz, and, and we haven't made any Dadaesque puns or anything like that during the <laughs> course of the interview, so hopefully we've been understandable. It, really, thank you so much for taking the time, and my huge thanks as well to Mike White for putting us together. Uh, this has been really wonderful. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. I love talking to you all. Thank you so much. Thanks, Skiz. You're listening to episode 60 of See Here. We'll be back in just a moment to talk about what we'll be uh, presenting next month on the show. Fish! Back the hammer. What is this thing called woe? Tell me now just what you know, and I'll take you to a place you've never seen. Someone turns and is alarmed. I did not mean to bring them harm, but suddenly I hold them. In my arms Once again, our huge thanks to Skiz Sizik for being such a wonderful interview subject and for putting out such a marvellous film as Ice Pick to the Moon. I'm not sure if at the end of that you know who Fred Lane is, but maybe that's the point. Anyway, if you hear about Ice Pick to the Moon coming to your neck of the woods, watch it. We implore you. It's a wonderful film. Check out uh, Fred Lane on YouTube as well. I mean, just to get a taste and you'll understand where we're coming from for the episode. Absolutely. Uh, both albums that were released are absolutely fantastic. From the one that cut you and Car Radio, Jerome, both really, really great albums. Absurdist, but not inaccessible. Yeah, if you like the Bonzo Dog Doodah band mixed with, I don't know, Frank Mothers Sinatra. Yeah, Frank Sinatra and Mothers <laughs> of Invention. Yep. Absolutely. Then uh, then you'll enjoy But most of all, just going with a spirit of adventure. It's very, very accessible music, just done in a very absurdist sort of way. Yeah, huge thanks to Skiz for bringing this documentary into the world. The Fred Lane story is an interesting one, and he might have gone completely unnoticed, except, you know, amongst the hardcore fans, and hopefully some more people can follow up and watch this film and if you don't get a chance to see it if it doesn't come to your area then the DVD will be uh, hopefully out sometime later on this year and rest assured we'll be posting it on the Facebook group so you can catch it then through either DVD or streaming or whatever medium but this is really an essential film if you love music documentaries and if you're listening to this program hopefully you do so let's talk about next month that will be episode 61 of C here and it's the final one of our current run of interview programs and we you know, promise from March we'll get back to doing the round table talks that we have been doing for most of our run but I've really enjoyed these interviews as well though it's just you know, given us an opportunity to do something a little different so next month we'll be speaking to a director called Paul Elliott and he's put out a new film called The Library Music Film now I didn't really know that much about library music and more's the pity I've since gone and done some research you know, besides watching the film and holy cow there's a ton of people people out there who love and adore this sort of music and what it is I don't want to spoil it but just go into Spotify or whatever it is that you do your music streaming if that's what you want to do and just type in library music and I guarantee you'll know half of these tunes that come up there it's just absolutely amazing a lot of funky sort of stuff it's music written for films that haven't been made yet it's an alternative history of pop music if you will some great names and you know in the library music world Keith Mansfield is like Bruce Springsteen I don't know just pull a name out of a hat you know absolutely huge in that world so we look forward to talking to Paul about his new film The 
library music film. It'll be a fascinating documentary. He's currently doing the rounds with it on the film festival circuit and he's winning awards and doing all sorts of wonderful things. So we'll be talking with him about that film and hopefully he'll give some information as to when it will be available on uh, streaming and DVD as well as uh, some background about what library music is and who its heroes are and uh, all the other sorts of details about film. So looking very forward to that in February of 2019. Can I just interject here? I think certainly over here in the UK I know it's already out on DVD. Oh great. Okay well there you go. I know that he's still doing screenings. It, in fact, it might I've, be out. Yeah. I think I saw something just a few hours ago that it's got a screening coming up in London. Well as we record I think this Wednesday so that would be okay. what, what is it what's today the 19th so the 22nd or 23rd or something like that of January by the time this comes out it might be too late to book for it but it's still doing the rounds of the film festival circuit but yes if uh, you reckon the DVD is out then please do a I'm search I'm pretty for sure it. it is out yeah it's out over here I think it might be out in a few other territories I'm not entirely sure but um, you know if you're able to see it before we discuss it then uh, you know you can... I ordered a copy of the record of uh, the, the, the soundtrack that, which was I think available from Bandcamp they did two pressings yeah. of it it's not being released on CD or streaming to the best of my knowledge I mean if you go and look up the tunes on it I'm sure the individual tunes you can find on YouTube or Spotify if you wish to listen to it that way I'm not sure whether the second pressing has already sold out but if it's not I'd urge you to go search that out and just as an addendum if you sort of want to find a good another good compilation uh, Anthology Recordings has released a great album and CD called Unusual Sounds it opens up with Funky Fanfare by Keith Mansfield which uh, <laughs> which everyone everyone knows this will know <laughs> I'll play it over the closing of uh, this show, but such a great tune, and deservedly so, of all the attention that it's getting. Coming attractions, you know, like yep. with that, you know, the intro to that, you'll know, you'll know exactly what this is. If you wish to talk with us, then you can access on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here, S W H E A R. You can download us from seehere.podbean.com or from iTunes. Also, we're now on Spotify and on Stitcher Radio. Get those apps and you can hear us there plus you know just the podcasting app of your choice you'll find us there please spread the word that we exist we'd love to have uh, more people on board to have a listen and maybe even contact us and say hey we'd like to discuss a particular film with you we're always excited about doing that sort of thing we're on instagram as well it's been a little quiet of late but i will uh, do my best to remedy that and uh, we are see here podcast on instagram so uh, you can follow us there as well if you would uh, if you're so inclined you'll need to put a few photos of fred up on instagram I will, absolutely i'm gonna start doing that over the next few days it's going to be a deluge of Fred Lane <laughs> very good alright anyway once again thanks very much for joining us on the start of our sixth year of our humble little podcast we really really do enjoy doing this and having these great chats and hopefully you're getting something out of it too so until February we just want to say fish fish light bulb
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 